When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone is voting for Jack Cause he's got what all the rest lack Everyone wants to back Jack Jack is on the right track Cause he's got Welcome back to the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. I have here a fan favorite, one that I get messages often to have back that teaches me everything, teaches you guys everything. It is the one, the only Ryan Pryor. Well, thank you. Um, I don't think I deserve that much credit, but I do appreciate. I don't your think you do either, but, you, but well, I get a lot of messages well, about you. So uh, you know, that's that's okay. A fan favorite. I, that's definitely um, definitely a high praise. High praise coming from you. So, <laughs> um, and he just actually got back from voting, didn't you? I uh, I did. I did not get to vote today. I'm going oh. tomorrow. I'm going tomorrow. Uh, I swear to okay. God. I, keep, I let Yesterday I didn't go. Today I was supposed to go, and then I had some things I had to take care of. And so I'm voting tomorrow for sure. For Good. sure. That's my Everybody big thing vote. tomorrow. Everybody's got to go vote. Um, that's a big deal. Voting is important. Yep. And um, that can kind of lead into what we're talking about today. Yeah. And so, yeah, let's talk about it. So uh, I actually contacted you about this mm-hmm. uh, a month or so ago, and I was like, uh, hey, I've got this idea to talk about the election of 1960 and the election of 1964 uh, because I was sitting around one night reading things as I do, and uh, it just kind of struck me how similar these two elections are to our current environment. And I think as we go through these and talk about them today, you're going to see some really cool parallels between what was going on then and what was going on now. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to do this with you again for two reasons. One, because, uh, my favorite quote of all time, well, not of all time, but one of my favorite quotes is that the past is never dead. It's not even past yet, which I think I've mentioned on here before from William Faulkner. Um, and one of the things that's really been annoying me recently, um, among the myriad things that annoy me on a daily basis (laughs) is that I keep seeing people saying this is unprecedented. What, the time we're living in is unprecedented. Everything is different. I keep having sort of discussions with people in my circles about there's going to be another civil war. There's going to be this. There's going to be that. And I keep trying to say, you know, in my sort of uh, tone, well, if you look at history, you can maybe see some flaws in that argument. And not only that, if you really look at history and do a, a deep dive into it, you can see how, again, as Faulkner says, the past is never dead. It isn't even past yet. And so I wanted to come on here amongst you and your wonderful audience and make sure that we were able to set the record straight about what history can teach us about this election cycle, because I know that many of your listeners are sitting there going, this is crazy. How is this all happening? It's never felt like this before. And uh, quite honestly, it, that's actually wrong. It definitely has felt like this before, and I'm gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna look at how how it did, and and again, it just so happens to coincide with the Kennedys, our beloved Kennedys, and 
um, my, my second favorite president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who was Kennedy's vice president. All right. I'm here for this. I am ready to learn. So let's do it. Okay. So, I, oh, by the way, everybody, ahead. the ball is kind of in Ryan's court today. He is our teacher. And so he's going to be leading the conversation majority and, of the time. And too. make sure, Just I mean, Allison, anytime you have a question or things like that, I've got a lot of side things. So please make sure you ask them and oh, make sure you keep up to, uh, up to, up to what we're doing because there's a lot of information. So part one cool. of this two part series is going to be on the election of 1960. And so if anyone just heads up, if you're looking for a book to continue your education, I would suggest the first modern campaign by a guy named Gary Donaldson, the first modern campaign, because that's really what the election of 1960 was. Uh, it was the first modern campaign. It was highly televised. It was highly public. And it was just by and large the first campaign where people could actually see on a daily, nightly, weekly basis, the candidates, what they were saying, what they were thinking, uh, you know, get really in-depth with their families. Um, not to say that candidates hadn't been public before, but now the television brought the eyeballs of the world into the campaign offices um, during this campaign. So let's get into it. Um, obviously, you guys know who was in the election of 1960. It was John F. Kennedy was the Democratic candidate uh, versus Richard Milhouse Nixon. Um, how those Milhouse? Two, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> Richard Milhouse Nixon. No, this actually, Thank this, God he abbreviated. Yes, That's these, awful. <laughs> these, these stories are full of fun names, I think, um, because you – know, so, so basically Kennedy – is a, a, you know, a senator, uh, a wealthy elite family, we have talked about that before, comes from money, represents the new young wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, he is handsome, he is debonair, he is charming, um, and uh, he, he doesn't win outright the DNC, the Democratic National Convention's um, candidacy. Uh, you know, he, has to, he goes up against this guy named Hubert Humphrey, Hubert Humphrey called himself the uh, general store of America, something like that. He, he felt like he was in the hearts and minds of, of real average Americans. Um, and, uh, and he's juxtaposed with John F. Kennedy, who is this young, vibrant, um, you know, politician coming out of not, almost nowhere, not really, but almost nowhere. And, uh, and you know, the, the, the energy of the two campaigns is juxtaposed by Hubert Humphrey. You know, they've got, he's got his jingles and things like that. And Kennedy has got Sinatra singing High Hopes for him. And uh, it's just, all, it's just you know, it, it was no, by no means a foregone conclusion that Kennedy was going to be the candidate in 1960. But after the convention or at the convention, it basically cemented it. There was just nothing Hubert Humphrey could do to overcome that kind of thing. Um, he tried to play up the idea that Kennedy was a Catholic. Uh, and you know, the majority of Americans are Protestants and they have this idea about Catholics. Um, but it just doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't go long enough. It will come back later on. And I know it's kind of crazy for us to sit here talking about the idea that being a Catholic was enough to put people on edge about you as a candidate. Yeah, that is crazy. Uh, you know, but that's where we're at. Um, and to be fair, the Kennedy campaign did a really good job. The primary campaign did a really good job of switching it around and making Hubert Humphrey look like a bigot. 
Um, basically, they say you're, you're they, they say, hey, if you're a Catholic, look at what this guy's saying about you. He's saying that Catholics shouldn't be allowed to be president. Uh, and that kind of backfires on um, Hubert Humphrey. And, and Kennedy, you know, basically becomes this anti-establishment candidate. Other than Hubert Humphrey, there was one other guy who was standing in the way of Kennedy's ascension to the Democratic candidacy, and that guy was Lyndon Baines Johnson. LBJ, whatever you want to call him, uh, he was the Senate Majority Leader, uh, and he really wants the nomination. And, and we're going to get into more of Lyndon B. in the second part, because again, as I said, Lyndon B. Johnson is my second favorite president. Who's your first? Theodore Roosevelt. Oh, I should have guessed. Yeah, it's... You know, it's, why it's, do you like? Okay, I gotta, I gotta just back up a little bit, and I guess we will get into this again. That's but I just fine. Have that's to fine. Ask, why is LBJ one of your favorites? You'll find out. You will find because okay. the second part of this is all about mostly about how LBJ is just a a, a bad a mother effer. I and think all I've ever really learned about him is that he was just kind of grody. Like he was, no, he was, he was. And don't <laughs> get me wrong. I mean, he wasn't a good man. This is not, like, I wouldn't choose, like, if you're trying to, like... So your secret, second favorite president of the United States was not a good man. <laughs> no. And, 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 no, he was not. And I will admit that readily. I, I'm not saying I base my life off of him. I just like him for who he was. Even though some of those you know, warts and all. Anyway, LBJ tries to stand up against Kennedy. Uh, he tries to use Kennedy's Addison's disease against him. You know, we've talked about that. Oh, yeah, um, that's right. You know, and so Kennedy had Addison's disease... Uh, LBJ says this man is sick. He's too sick. Tell like, like speak to the nation, and the Kennedy so campaign. It, well, hold on. The Kennedy campaign comes out and says what Addison's disease, and lies. Just says nope. Kennedy's not sick. That's He's perfectly fine. helpful. Okay. All right. Miss Morality. Are you sick? <laughs> at what point? Right. Like, what is the line for you? I don't um, know. <laughs> <laughs> if if it supports the people I like, it's there's no line. If it doesn't yeah, support terrible. the people no. I like, it's no I line. I literally just thought in my head I should edit that out, but I'm not going to. And <laughs> and listen, everybody believes Kennedy. He lies. Says I don't. No, says nope. No, you. He basically turns. It's like a, the Uno card. It's like the reverse. It's like nope. I'm not sick. And it works. Kennedy wins the nomination, and against Bobby's wishes, says we got to get LBJ on the ticket. As the vice president. And the biggest reason, LBJ is a Southern Democrat. He is from the state of Texas. His wife uh, is a millionaire uh, from Texas, very wealthy. His wife's name, Lady Bird Johnson. Uh, just first the, lady, the, Lady the, Bird. The coolest, the coolest um, first woman, first lady nickname, I'd say. Uh, not nickname, real name, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, juxtaposed by the, the woman she would replace in, in 1960. Uh, as second lady, I'm sorry, but the first lady under Eisenhower, Eisenhower's wife, Mamie Eisenhower. And so so that big fight in the DNC is juxtaposed by the fact that no one challenges Nixon because Nixon, as you know, has been the vice president for eight years. Mm-hmm. So Richard Nixon was, was Dwight D. Eisenhower's vice president for eight years, 1952 to 1960. He goes virtually unchallenged, and as soon as he finds out that Kennedy is the candidate, on the DNC side, he believes that he has got the, the election wrapped up. Dwight Eisenhower was an incredibly popular can, like popular president. I mean, Dwight, you couldn't get more popular than Dwight Eisenhower was. 
He was the Supreme Allied Commander during the Second World War. He, he comes back and he says, I'm going to beat communism in America. And he spends eight years. He presides over eight years of the, some of the greatest economic expansion that the United States has ever seen. 1950 to 1960, is those are the boom years. That's the leave it to beaver time. That's the time that a lot of current 60 to 80-year-olds really wish we were back to. They want you to conveniently forget about all the segregation and all of the social injustices and just remember the good leave it to beaver stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But Dwight Eisenhower is very popular. And, and, and Nixon was very popular as his vice president. That begins this, this campaign. You've got Nixon who runs unopposed basically to get the RNC nomination. And you've got Kennedy who had to fight his way through two of the most powerful Democrats just to get there as this outsider candidate. Okay? And by the way, we like to think of history as foregone conclusions. But there was no foregone conclusion that Kennedy was going to beat Nixon. I mean, honestly, if you'd have had money at the time, you would have bet on Nixon. Nixon was young. He had energy. He was, he was very calm and collected. He was a, the traditional sense of a politician. There was no reason to think that the, a young upstart from out of nowhere was going to beat this guy who had mm-hmm. just spent the last eight years of his, of his, of his time in the, White, in the, well, not the White House, but whatever, wherever the vice president hangs out. I think it's the Eisenhower building now, but I may be wrong. Again, so we've got Nixon here. It's not a foregone conclusion by any means. And thus starts the campaign, right? Thus we begin the campaign of 1960, okay? Um, and so, again, two different campaigns. Uh, the Nixon campaign runs on a stalwart sense of patriotism, uh, traditional Republican values, uh, defeating communism, uh, you know, maintaining the economy, things like that. So the other side of this campaign is the Kennedy part. The Kennedy campaign was light. It was breezy. It was the Sinatra of campaigns. It is sort of um, exemplified by the jingle ad, which you've played on here before. Kennedy, you know, K-E-N, you know, that thing. That is, again, and by the way, that ad was aimed at housewives. They put that on in the middle of the day to, and not only that, in pictures of Kennedy, because housewives see Kennedy, they hear this jingle, they like it, and, and the idea there was that they were going to talk to their husbands and get their husbands to be in on Kennedy, and it worked. I mean, in large part, it did work, yeah. Um, and so you've got two very different campaigns. Kennedy was charming, right? We know this. Why well, wouldn't be doing this podcast about him if he wasn't charming? And the press, for the first time, as I said earlier, the press for the first time was a giant factor in this election, right? Cameras. Mm-hmm. And more than just radio, more than just fireside chats, there were cameras, there was live production value to this campaign. And we take that for granted now, right? We take that for granted, I mean, just on a daily basis. You know, every election is highly publicized, highly televised. But in 1960, that was a big deal. But even Joe at this time, by the way, again, I want to make sure we all know this wasn't a foregone conclusion that Kennedy was going to win. Joe Kennedy in private was saying, there's no way. We can't beat Nixon. Nixon is really? the establishment. Yes. I didn't know that. The big, and the biggest thing going against them, and again, we come back to this, is the fact that Kennedy and the Kennedy family is Catholic. Now, that doesn't matter to get the northeast of the United States. There's a bunch of Catholics there. Mm-hmm. Midwest, even. A bunch of Catholics there, right? But the South, which, is, which, is historically, which historically up to that point was a Democratic stronghold, the solid South, mm-hmm. the West Coast... All of these, these states, sort of, again, there's this idea that, you know, he's a Catholic. What does that mean? Okay? And remember, without the South, Kennedy wasn't going to win the election. 
So Kennedy says, okay, this is my biggest issue. Here's what I'm going to do. He goes to Houston and he addresses this big giant hall. He brings together this big giant hall of Protestant ministers. I think it was like 400, maybe that number might be wrong. And what he does is he gets up on stage for two or three hours and he just answers questions from Protestant ministers. Now, can you imagine, by the way, if a candidate did that, had to do that now? Nothing do you sad. imagine <laughs> the backlash? Yeah, that's insane. The ACLU would have a field day. Mm -hmm. But in 1960, it was totally reasonable. And he answers these questions one by one. Some of them are asking questions like, and you should, you should really go watch a, you could, even, you, you could do a clip in here, but you don't have to, but go watch this. Because they're asking questions like, well, if you're, are you going to appoint a bunch of Catholics to your cabinet? And he's like, no. He's like, I'm like, a that's Catholic. an issue he's, anyway. He's like, yeah, he's like, he's like with the, first of all, that's not an issue. But secondly, why, I'm not going to appoint anyone based on their religion because this is the United States. I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source, where no religious body seeks to impose its will, directly or indirectly, upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials, and where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. For while this year it may be a Catholic against whom the finger of suspicion is pointed, in other years it has been, and may someday be again, a Jew or a Quaker or a Unitarian or a Baptist. It was Virginia's harassment of Baptist preachers for example, that led to Jefferson's statute of religious freedom. Today I may be the victim, but tomorrow it may be you. Until the whole fabric of our harmonious society is ripped apart at a time of great national peril. That is the kind of America in which I believe, and it represents the kind of presidency in which I believe. A great office that must be neither humbled by making it the instrument of any religious group, nor tarnished by arbitrarily withholding it, its occupancy from the members of any one religious group. I believe in a president whose views on religion are his own private affair, neither imposed upon him by the nation, nor imposed by the nation upon him as a condition to holding that office. And at the end of it, he gets a standing ovation. I mean, this is the turning point, really, for the election. He gets in there, he answers these questions, he does, in, he does brilliantly. But again, it's still not a foregone conclusion. On the other side, Richard Milhouse Nixon, <laughs> his strategy is to say, I'm going to go and visit every single state in the United States. That was States. good. That was Thank good. You. Thank you. <laughs> I, 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 you have to get the jowls involved. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That was one of your better impersonations I've heard, I have to say. I, you know. Um, and I've heard, I've heard a lot over the I years. I've heard a lot, a lot of really bad impressions. Um, we're going to visit every state. And uh, take that random commenter who said that my impressions were bad. You can eat You know egg. who you are. You, you know who you are. are. I don't know who you are. You can eat all the eggs in the world. Um, <laughs> that's what my wife and I said. Whenever Caroline and I talk, we, we were like, 
we say you can go eat an egg. It's kind of a you know a nice way of of saying you know. That's so kind. Good for you guys. But look at that positive communication in marriage. I love yes, it. Yes, it's good. You have to have positive communication. Um, Nixon's visiting every state. What kind of problems do you think that's going to bring up? Well, so the big thing is this. The Electoral College in the United States of America makes it to it makes the system a little bit uh, funky. You might think that visiting every state would be a good idea. Get as many states, as many people in as many states on your side as possible. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that's not how elections are run in the United States. Now, simply put, the Electoral College is a system whereby every state, based on their population, is assigned a certain number of, quote-unquote, votes. These are called electoral votes. So a state like New York at this time would have had, like, 15 to 20 electoral votes, whereas a state like Montana was assigned two, because the population's are very different. Mm -hmm. Same thing goes today. Texas and Florida and California and Ohio and Pennsylvania are individually worth more in terms of the Electoral College than states like Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, you get the picture. Mm -hmm. So the problem with running an election this way is that even though, yes, it's good to get support amongst a broad range of populaces, electorally, you actually really only want to focus on 10 to 15 states where the largest margin of electoral votes will go your way on election night. So you're not wanting to like rough it in Montana because you have very little pull there in and of it, even if you want it. All the time you're spending in Montana, you could spend on four or five cities in Ohio and do just as much damage. And so it's, again, it's about working smarter, not harder. Mm -hmm. So that's Nixon's real big Achilles heel here. He He tries to get everybody. That's not how elections work. The electoral college makes it to where you must focus on those states. And then on top of this, this is what happens. Nixon just suffers a really st- a stroke of bad luck. Hits his knee on a door getting out of a, of a car, breaks his knee, okay, gets an infection, ends up in the hospital for two weeks. Now, remember what I said earlier? There's some parallels between these two elections and the, and the current election and the t- election of 2016? Yes. I'm going to let you guys make the connection to what has happened. <laughs> but we do know that uh, two weeks ago today, a candidate did get sick. Not going to go into exactly the details, but we know that that happened. So Wait, again, what? parallels. That happened? Yeah. I'm kidding. Okay. I was like, God. God golly. Um, <laughs> Although you did say the election of 2016, you meant Well, I meant both. This 2016 year. and yeah. 2020. Yes, yes. So Nixon's sick and can't campaign for two weeks. So that's going against him. But he's got a, a ray of hope. Okay? Much like in 2020, I think there was a candidate who thought, my ray of hope. What's my ray of hope? What's left? The debates. Okay? And Nixon's like, I have got the debates. I am stronger on policy. I am much more presentable. I am much sweatier. Well, we'll well, hold on. But remember, remember, this is going to be the first first televised debate. Nixon didn't understand what that meant. Nobody nobody really understood what that meant. Nobody did. That's so weird. And by the way, do you want to know what this is parallel to? 2016, the first real election with the internet. I know that sounds weird because we had the internet in 2012 and 2008, but the yeah. reality was is campaigns had not yet really figured out how to use the internet. 2016 was the year of the internet campaign. That's kind of true now that yeah. I think back. Yeah. It, yeah, it is. And so one of the reasons that Donald Trump was able to win in 2016 was because they effectively used internet targeted advertising on things like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and, and, and Instagram. Well, the Kennedy campaign understood that this was a modern debate, a modern mm-hmm. election, I'm sorry. 
And so Nixon's got this idea that he's going to win, and they've got four debates, four debates. But after the first one, it was over. They did all four debates, but the first one is the defining debate. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so you know a little bit about that. You've, you've mentioned the sweatiness a couple of times. Yeah, <laughs> it just cracks me up to watch. So the debates come along. Kennedy and Nixon are sort of standing there waiting to go, you know, go in. And, and everyone, the, almost the entire electorate is going to view, tune in to watch this. It's a big mm-hmm. deal, huge deal, huge. Okay? <laughs> what we know is that publicly, Kennedy was preparing the debate by relaxing and swimming and having some drinks and enjoying himself. And Nixon was pacing about his room, studying notes, changing shirts, uh, really just, <laughs> just taking it very, very seriously. When they get there, both candidates publicly refuse makeup. Kennedy secretly goes back in the back and gets full makeup done. Nixon yes. does not. And, uh, and the debate happens. It's just a confidence versus nerves. The viewers on the TV see a cool, calm, and collected Kennedy. And then they see Nixon, who is sweating profusely. He is stumbling over his words. And the biggest problem with it is that he keeps agreeing with Kennedy. He keeps saying, well, Mr. Kennedy, I, I agree with that. I agree. <laughs> yes, well, I agree with that. I agree with Senator Kennedy's appraisal generally in this respect. Well, guess what? A debate is not about agree. It's not like a, a tea party. A debate is not supposed to be where you're like, you know what? I agree with you. Well, I agree with you. Well, why don't we both just get elected? No, you're trying to juxtapose yourself. And the modern term for how a lot of Republicans watch this debate was cringy. They watch this debate and they see Nixon up there and they're like, oh, my God. <laughs> kind of like how we watched the debate two weeks ago. Never mind. Oh, but for real. I mean, it was cringy, right? So brutal. So I got so cringy. many messages actually asking me, like, who do you think won the debate? I was like, no Nobody, one. The American people <laughs> lost the debate. <laughs> we That's all it. lost. We all lost. <laughs> Nobody won that debate. Everyone lost. The Everyone. wine in my glass won. <laughs> the wine, yes. My, the hangover my next day. The hangover won. I actually, honestly, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't watch it. Couldn't do it. You didn't watch it? I watched the aftermath. I, could, I couldn't I do couldn't it. I couldn't look away. It was a train wreck. No, I can't. So I don't like rubbernecking. Okay? I don't like rubbernecking. But anyway, Nixon's performance is just plain bad. Optically, after the debate's over, they do a poll. People watching on television overwhelmingly said Kennedy won. People listening on the radio overwhelmingly said that Nixon won. That's weird because, I mean, I, I get it because obviously it was visual, but... Wouldn't you still think it was a little cringy, like you said, for the candidate to be agreeing with the opposing That's party? That's part of it, but he was he was still collected. He was still presidential. Like vocally, he was yeah. vocally very good. It was the cringy part came from all of the kind of sweating. He was jittery. Sure. He was just moving around. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, the, after that debate, honestly, just just the next three just weren't uh, anything worth watching. Ironically, one of the debates was in fact virtual. Mm-hmm. where one candidate was in California and one candidate was in New York. So it's not like there hasn't been a precedent for this. I'm clapping back if you couldn't figure out what that sound was. Just again. And it went off without a hitch. It did. And remember. In the 60s. The past is never dead. It isn't even past yet, right? Oh, get it. I there love you go, that callback. Right? Look there you at go, you. right? So there's still two bullets left in Nixon's gun. Okay? Two bullets left in Nixon's gun. One, the issue of civil rights. Again, the Kennedy campaign did not run on civil rights. We talked about this. We talked about mm-hmm. this in our, la- in our episode, in whenever I was on in May. 
mm-hmm. that the Kennedy campaign would honestly rather have just ignored the civil rights issue altogether. Because remember, they needed the South to win the election. They didn't want to step on the Southerners' toes. They would honestly would rather it just not come up. Meanwhile, the Eisenhower administration and, the, and Nixon had both been really good friends to MLK. And during the election, Martin Luther King Jr. is arrested in Alabama. Nixon tries with to no avail to get him out of prison. And meanwhile, and, and it doesn't ha- nothing happens. On the other side, the Kennedy campaign, one guy in the Kennedy campaign found, finds out about this, finds out that he's in jail, says, I think, you know, if, 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 if John F. Kennedy will call, something might happen, and this will look really good. But he knows that the campaign advisors are not going to let this happen. It would look really bad. He secretly gets Kennedy to do it. And as soon as they all find out about it, they're so mad, they're so pissed. But guess what? On national television, Martin Luther King Jr. says, Now, it is true that Senator Kennedy did take a specific step. Uh, He was in contact with uh, officials in Georgia during my arrest, and he, he called my wife, made a personal call, and expressed his concern and said to her that he was uh, working and trying to do something to make my release possible. His brother, who at that time was his campaign manager, also made direct contact with officials and even the judge in Georgia, so that uh, the Kennedy family did have some part, at least they expressed a concern, and they did have some part in the release. One last card to play, Nixon plays it. He brings in Eisenhower. Up to that point, Dwight Eisenhower or Ike, a lot of cool names in these stories. Ike had not really campaigned for Nixon, and he comes out in the last hour. And remember, Eisenhower is massively popular, like big-time popular. He was the man of the 1940s because he helped win the Second World War for the Allies. He was the supreme Mm -hmm. Allied commander. He came in and won in landslides in the 1950s. He is massively popular. And at the last minute, this brings Nixon very close. Um... And so it comes down to election night. The two candidates deal with it very differently. Kennedy votes, goes to Hyannisport. Nixon votes in California, where he was from. For Kennedy, because he agreed with everything that he said. Uh, (laughs) We will never know. We may never know. But And Nixon then goes to Mexico. Get it. And started drinking margaritas. (laughs) Hey, you know what? Waited out with some margaritas. I love in Mexico. it. I love it. He, he flies to Mexico, <laughs> drinks some margaritas. That honestly is how I deal with even small inconveniences in my life. <laughs> for real. Imagine you're a candidate for president, and the night of, you're like, "What do I want to do?" Uh, absolutely, I'm going to go. There's this great restaurant in, in Memphis, and it's it's a Mexican restaurant. It's my favorite Mexican restaurant. I won't tell anyone where it is, so they can't, you know, whatever. <laughs> but they just have these great margaritas and these great, these great, this great, um, just a lot of f- the food. I like my, I, that's my favorite thing to do. See, I'm not COVID. a margarita girl. I'm a sangria girl, but Jeffrey loves margaritas. So there's a place literally down the road that has $2.99 margarita and sangria specials. And some of our best friends, shout out, love them too. So it, it's a good time. They're $2.99. Very good. Very, yeah, of course. That. Of course. They're automatically better. But what I was going to say is not everybody has a huge compound estate on right, the beach they can right. go to. Sure, so sure. you can't fault them for exactly. going to Mexico. Exactly. That's true. That's true. That's true. Election is swinging back and forth, by the way. All while this is happening. And uh, it's very, very tight. Kennedy goes to sleep. Kennedy's like, Meh, I can't. I'm not going to deal with this. Um, I'm going to go to sleep. And uh, at, right after midnight, right after midnight, spoiler alert, Nixon did not win. Oh, my God. No clue. Nixon is informed that he has lost. 
Uh, I think they woke Kennedy up to tell him, but I'm not sure. And in the light of day, all of these stories start to come out about all of these dead voters, that there has been some election tampering and everything. Everyone is wondering, well, is Nixon going to contest the election? And Nixon calls Eisenhower and he says, I do not think it would be good for the country if there was no succession of power and to draw this out any farther would be bad for the overall health of our nation. And so I am going to concede. Wow. I'm not going to dig into it because he felt that the office was more important than his own, his own position. And perhaps he just didn't have the fight in him anymore. Maybe he was hung over. I mean, he'd probably, I mean, he might might have had a bunch of margaritas. Yeah. Um, (laughs) He was like, look, I don't want to cut this vacation short. And he and he says, (laughs) no. (laughs) And I'm just going to tell you that just like, just like, I just, that's the one difference between now and then that I see is that there is a respect for, there was a respect for the office of president. There was mm-hmm. a respect for the continuation of free and, and honest government, or maybe not honest, but free government, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and there was a respect for the continuity of leadership that I'm not sure we're going to see this time around, which is very disappointing. But at the same time, you know, history can sh- history shows us plenty of examples of how this goes. And and so, yeah, I, and, and by the way, this you can juxtapose this. This is irony in itself. This is the definition of irony because in 1973... 74, 74, 1974, Gerald Ford, who takes over for Richard Milhouse Nixon, pardons Nixon for the Watergate scandal Mm -hmm. because in his own words, and I quote, paraphrasing here, we need to heal as a nation. We have to move on from this because otherwise we will not heal as a nation. And so he pardons Nixon, you know, 10, uh, 14 years later for the exact same reason that Nixon did not pursue sort of election tampering that was that was claimed. And we know what happens after that. And 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 Kennedy is elected and and begins what is, you know, one of the most prolifically important and short presidential terms in the history of the United States. And that's part one. Because here's the deal, guys. Remember, the guy who got elected with Kennedy, his name, Lyndon Baines Johnson, super cool middle name by the way. He is the one who gets the things that Kennedy is remembered for passed through. He is the one who continues on Kennedy's legacy in a way. He is the one who takes all of this this stuff and brings it forward after Kennedy is assassinated. And if it were not for Lyndon B. Johnson, the Civil Rights Act would not have happened. And Kennedy might not have won the election of 1960 without the support of Texas Democrats and Democrats across the South brought into the fold by Lyndon Baines Johnson. And that's why he deserves his own episode, which is part two Can't believe of I'm this doing saga. It. I cannot believe I'm giving to. LBJ his own episode. You have episode, to, because again, you're doing it. You're doing it. I love it. All right, guys, join us next week for part two of this really honestly educational and very entertaining if i may say so myself uh podcast so i will talk to you guys next week come on and vote for kennedy vote for kennedy keep america strong kennedy he just keeps rolling up kennedy he just keeps rolling up kennedy he just keeps rolling up Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. 
Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.